Good morning, church. If you can please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. When I'm finished reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll reply, thanks be to God. And we say this because we are thankful God gave us his breathed out word to live by and have authority over us. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood before them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and the fact that we still have ways to remain together and worship you despite all the craziness and fear surrounding us. Help us to remain in your word and fully trust and rely on you and you alone. Lift up Pastor Mark as he preaches your word and open our ears and hearts to what we need to hear. Amen. Well, good morning, Living Stones, wherever you are all over the city. Uh, if, this is, if this feels weird to you, it feels weird to us as well. I never had a dream of being a televangelist, but I will tell you that they have had a bum rap. This is not easy. It is not easy. One is just asking for money like a televangelist. That's not easy. But then preaching to a camera of people that you don't get responses. I'm not going to hear any amens. I'm not going to think I'm funny. Uh, There's going to be no laughing. This is weird. And it is weird, right? When we're all kind of experiencing, this is a weird time. If you've been out and about during this um, self-quarantine, you're going to feel weird. The streets are a little bit more empty. Stores are closed. Um, it feels like doomsday out there. And, um, and so we're all kind of just feeling strange. And this is even strange. And, and I don't think this is how God has obviously designed the church, but it is where we're at right now. I will tell you, though, I'm, I'm really thankful in light of the corona apocalypse that I'm in Nevada for this. Because if I was in California, I'm probably a dead man. But in, Cal- but in Nevada, I feel like uh, Nevadans have been preparing for this for a long time, right? I mean, there's a reason why, um, you know, there's still food on the shelves, but no guns on the shelves. So, right. And some of you are like feeling really justified. You're like, I've been, I've been waiting for this since Y2K. And now you're like, see, here it is. It's all come about. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. I feel very safe being here um, in light of how strange all this is. But I I do, before we get into the text, I do want to say a couple things just pastorally. One is, thank God that we have this opportunity. I mean, back in the day, back in the plague days, back in other epidemics, back in the Spanish flu of 1918, all of that, um, you know, the church had to 
uh, be sequestered as well. The church had to stop meeting on Sundays, especially uh, back in 1918. And there's, you can see some news articles, which I've seen this week, of churches that ended up having to close down. You know what happened? The pastors had to go to the people, and then they got sick, and then they died. So I'm really thankful that I can be here, and we could still minister. And, um, and, and all of that aside, let me just say that your pastors want to minister to you. And so if you get sick, if you need help, and you're quarantined or whatever, or in the hospital, we're not afraid. And we want to come and we want to minister to you. And, um, and that is our joy. And that is our heartbeat. And so please um, don't feel bad. If you need the ministry of your pastors, call us. We want to be there for you. Secondly, uh, just to encourage us, you're in your living room, you know, having avocado toast or whatever. Uh, and um, just know it's already a spiritual battle on any given Sunday to show up to church. We all know that those are the mornings that maybe your wife and you have an argument, uh, your kids can't get their stuff together, they just won't get out of bed, or they, for some reason they can't find anything to wear, um, or you, you just don't feel emotionally ready or emotionally prepared, you don't feel like singing or showing up or seeing people. Coming to church is already a spiritual battle. It's already really difficult on any given Sunday morning. Now, when you take away the fact that you'll be missed and people will know you're not gone and, and all of those things, and now you're just in your living room, this is even more tempting to disconnect spiritually. And um, our desire is push through these harder, this harder connection time and, um, and, and be aware that the enemy and even our own flesh is going to be looking for excuses not to grow spiritually in this time. And our hope is that you will be present with us. We are putting this service together, not just to do a service, but that we still have a dedicated hour, hour and a half time as a family. We are getting together as a spiritual discipline to worship Jesus and grow together. And we're together, although we're not together. And, uh, and, and thirdly, um, Again, kind of related to that is we're not pausing our spiritual lives. We're not, the church is not canceled. We are not, the church is not in quarantine in that sense. We are moving forward and we have great hope that God is doing something specific, which is why we wanted to bounce off the Hebrews text and we wanted to go to Acts chapter one this morning because God is doing something. And, and, and you know, the, my question maybe this morning is just what the heck is God doing? What, what is some of the things that God might be doing in this really strange, weird time? Because it, it, it seems it's affecting us personally. It's affecting us as a church. It's, a, it's affecting how we meet with people. It's affecting our discipleship. In, in one sense, it seems to be affecting all the things that God really cares about. And, um, and so what is all of this about? And so I wanted to, to hit Acts chapter one, and then out of that, we're gonna go into Acts chapter eight, but answering this question, what is it that, that God might be doing in all of this craziness? And so look in Acts chapter one, and we'll start in verse six, build some context and just give some hope and help for us this morning. Acts chapter one, verse six. So when they, 
We'll come back to they had come together. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Here's where we are in the story. Jesus has died. Jesus rose. And uh, for some 40 days, he had made himself known. He, he allowed more than 500 people, the apostles, to see that he was alive. How many people would it take for us to know that something is true? One person, two people, three people. If it's gossip and juicy, it just takes one and it may not even be true, right? It just takes a, a blog article on our Facebook feed and we're like, this must be true. Well, Jesus appeared to at least 512 people at this day. They could have gone back and found and interviewed and, and really, so Jesus is alive for, for 40 days, he's appeared to more than 500 people to prove that he's alive. And so we're in this, this really neat time in the story is that Jesus defeated death, Jesus rose from the dead, and now Jesus has made himself, um, allowed himself to be witnessed as alive. And so everybody's feeling really good. And so then they come out with this question. So is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this the time? You're going to bring everything back together? Is this the time that we've been waiting for? That's their question. You know, you'll hear in a, in a movie or a TV show when the Bible gets talked about or maybe when Christianity gets talked about, it gets distilled to this one single idea. Well, the Bible as I read it is a book about love, right? If you saw the, the movie, the, the Book of Eli, um, and at the very end, it seemed like it was, here's this guy who spent his whole life, right? Even as a blind man protecting the word of God. And at the very end, he just puts it on a shelf with all the other holy books of the world. And he says, after reading this book over and over and over, it's just a book about love. This right here tells us something from insiders, that the insiders of Acts, they had a different idea of what the Bible was about. It is a book about love, but it is a book about love and that love restoring everything back together. So when you come to their question, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore all things? What you are getting at or what you are receiving here is the very core of the message of the Bible. And that is God has made the world, the world has gone awry, but God is going to restore the whole world again. And so all through the Old Testament, they're waiting for the Messiah, for the one, the, the one who's going to come and make everything right, right? And then Jesus gets born and Jesus shows up and Jesus begins his, his public ministry. And what do people do? They reject him. John 1 says he came to his own people and his own people received him not. They didn't see him as the Messiah. They didn't see him as the one because he didn't fit the, uh, the picture of the person who would restore all things and restore the kingdom of Israel. See, what they were waiting for is they were waiting for Jesus to come in and, and push out the Romans who were occupying Israel and, and once again make Israel God's covenant people on the face of the earth and be the people in which everyone else would be blessed by. And so they asked Jesus, before he was killed on the cross, they asked him, is this the time? Are you going to restore all things? And Jesus was like, whoa, that's not how this is going to look. And then when Jesus came along and said, no, no, in fact, I have to suffer and die. They're like, no, you don't. Because that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is supposed to come and conquer and restore Israel. And Jesus is flipping the script for them all. And so 
Then he dies, and they make it through that, and they're trying to make sense of it. And then he rises from the dead, and of course, where does their mind go? This must be the time. This must be the time that all things are going to be restored. And Jesus goes, no, 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 not yet, not yet, right? So that's their focus. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed in his own authority. Um, these, are the, these are the last words of the public ministry of Jesus. That's why I think they're so important for this moment. The last things that Jesus says that are recorded in his public ministry. This is not the last thing Jesus will ever say. This is the last words of Jesus in his ministry before he ascended to heaven. And last words are important. Last words are significant. The last thing that we say we want it, hopefully, I want to say something really significant, something that'll make everybody cry. That's what I want, right? I got to speak. I was the last one that spoke to my dad before he passed away on a phone call while I was in another state. And 45 minutes before he collapsed and never said anything else, I was the last of my siblings that got to talk with him. And the very last thing he said in that phone call was, take care of that girl of yours. My dad always had a heart for Christy. My dad is, I, I, I think my dad loved her more than me. And fair enough. My dad loved my wife. And the last things he said on that phone call before there was no more words that I would ever hear from him on this side of eternity was take care of that girl. And that's something I carry with me. I will take care of that girl. Last words are significant. These are the last words of Jesus. And, and when everything seemed like it was a win, everything was crescendoing, Jesus was alive, all of their fears were conquered. And here's this moment. This must be the moment that Israel as a people of God will get established again on the earth and the Romans will get theirs. And Jesus's first thing he says is not for you to know. Nope. Not your business is what Jesus says, right? It is not for you to know times or seasons. It, and what an incredible response when the very center of the message of the Bible is that God's people will be restored to God. That's the very hope of every page of the Bible. That's why Jesus has come. And they're finally trying to get it. And now you would think this is the moment, right? When everything else was confusing, this was the moment. And Jesus goes, no. You're not going to know. It's still not time for you to know, which, which brings us into this moment, right? That when there's uncertainty, when we want answers, when we're trying to make sense of what could God be doing? How does all of this make sense? And we recognize there are some things that belong only to God, that there are some things to know that we will never know and that that knowledge belongs to God, right? So we might go, why my job? Why did I, why does Corona have to come and I have to lose my job and the city gets shut down and now I'm not sure and resources are scarce and what, what about the church? Why my family is facing these things? And as, as the virus kind of spreads. We all know it's going to spread a little bit more than it is. We haven't reached its peak. We'll be asking when people that we know start getting sick and when people in very vulnerable populations that we love start getting sick. We're going to start asking, what could God be doing? And part of that answer is it's not always for us 
to know. But here's what we are to know. Look how Jesus answers this question. It's not for you to know times or seasons. That's what we're in, right? We're in a era, we're in a season of life that's unprecedented. So we're in a time or season. It's not for us to know why. But here's what we are to know. And Jesus gives us this very hopeful answer. It is not time for, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So here's what we're here. You're, you're not supposed to know all things. Some things belong only to God. But here's what you can know. That the Father is fixed this season. That the Father has fixed a time. The time you're referring to, it's already been fixed by his own authority. Which is a kind of confidence that there's nothing that's going to derail that. You just don't get to know about it. But those times and those seasons are fixed. That's good news. That's good news. And so it leaves, it, it leaves us, it leaves the disciples and it leaves us this question. Do we really want knowledge or do we really want Jesus? Do, what do we really want? What are we really after is when we're in prayer and seeking after God, what are we really after? And I think sometimes we're really after just wanting to know more. If I can know more, then I can feel more. And, we, and we've heard all over the place that one of the issues with this COVID thing is that we just didn't know enough early enough. And we feel like if I could just know more information, then I can feel safer, protect myself, watch out for my family, do the right things, maybe even return to work, Right? When it comes to our Christian faith, I think sometimes we want to know what God knows, but we don't want God himself. That was the garden. And so the, Jesus is saying, you don't get to know, but, but I'm here. The Father is here. You can trust the Father. He has fixed it by his own authority, so you don't get to know. But you don't get knowledge, but then what do we get? Look at in verse 8. It says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you don't get to know, but here's what you do get. You get this incredible calling and you get, you get three things here. So you don't get knowledge, but you get these three things. The first one is you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And, and re- recognize that this, the 12 apostles are here, but, but so are the more than 100 disciples that are a part of this crowd. So Jesus is speaking to them all. The Holy Spirit's coming upon you at some point. And we know in chapter two that happens. But what a radical thing for a bunch of fishermen and blue collar workers and tax collectors and sinners and the marginalized and the outcast. Do you know what they get to hear? They get to hear that you're about to receive the Holy Spirit like the greatest prophets and the heroes of your past. Because in the Old Testament, you know who received the Holy Spirit? The kings who were leading, some of them received the Spirit like King David received the Holy Spirit he prays that it wouldn't be removed from him, so he received the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so he's a hero of the faith. But then also the prophets, they received the Holy Spirit because they had to speak on behalf of God. And so if you take, if you take these Jewish people with a Jewish mind and, and, and now Jesus is alive and the very last thing he says is, you don't get to know, but here's what you do get. You get the same Holy Spirit that the great prophets of the Old Testament got. You get the same Holy Spirit upon you. You are, you, it's not about whether or not you are good enough. It's about the favor of God. God is gonna, in his grace, give you power that you don't deserve and doesn't belong to you. And it's equivalent to the same authority and power that the prophets received in the Old Testament. That is incredible. That is mind-blowing. 
that they get that. And they would have heard it like that, which is amazing. But secondly, so you get the Holy Spirit. Secondly, you will be my witnesses. You will testify about me. You'll be my witnesses. You know, it's fascinating is, remember the context is, is this the time you're going to restore Israel? And what they were continually looking for is a great conqueror. And a, and a great conqueror like Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the world because he was great, but he also, he raised up a bunch of soldiers who came in and conquered the world with him. And, and here's what Jesus says. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, but you'll be my witnesses. Notice the way, notice the way that this fixed time of a, of a restored kingdom under God will get established. It will not be through soldiers and, and human power. It'll come through witnesses. John Stott says it like this. It is spread by witnesses through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, by the work of the Spirit, not by force of arms, political intrigue or revolutionary violence. Mm. He says, you get to join in the revealing of this fixed time that you have no idea about by being witnesses, not soldiers, that the kingdom that is going to become, that is going to come is not going to come through force, but through testimony. And, and Luke 24, so Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the book of Luke. And in Luke 24, we have the exact same scene, but he, he writes it a little bit differently and he fills in some pieces for us. Look at Luke 24, 46 through 48. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. There it is. It's the same moment, the last words of Jesus, the last moment of Jesus' earthly ministry before he goes and ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the ultimate return of Christ. And he says, this is what you are going to witness. In Acts, we're told your witnesses. And in Luke, we're told what your witnesses of. Your witnesses to these things. What are the these things? Your witness to the suffering of Christ, that he died, that, that he took upon himself the wrath of God. You're a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. You saw that he died. You saw that he rose. What's significant about that is you know that Jesus really died for the purposes that he said he died for when you see that he broke the bounds, the, the, the binding of death. And then you will be my witnesses of repentance and forgiveness Meaning you'll be people in your own brokenness walking around in the real world of a demonstration that it is not your behavior or your law or your works or your obedience, but it is his grace in which saves you and frees you and makes you and changes you. You will be witnesses of repentance and forgiveness. That's incredible. So you don't get knowledge, but you get the Holy Spirit, but then you get to be witnesses of this incredible thing. And then it says you get to travel. <laughs> you get to be witnesses in Hawaii, right? Right? And you will, what? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth. You get to go be missionaries in the coolest places. This is what you get. You get to travel. Now, 
says in verse 9, when he had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood before them in white robes, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go. They're in awe. They're like, what? But part of it is they're just kind of left with, you don't get to know, but by the way, you get the Holy Spirit. That's great. What do I do? And you get to be witnesses. What does that mean? And you're going to travel. Oh, okay. And then he's gone. That's how Jesus leaves it. And for the most part, it's really great news. They're like, oh my gosh, did that just happen? It's really great news. And then it turned out for the next several chapters in Acts to be really great news. Because the Holy Spirit does come and they get to speak in many kinds of languages and people get saved. And then it says 3,000 people or more were being added to the church every single day. I mean, it was like the, it was like the best moments of the church ever. They're just going out going, man, you know, Jesus died and then he rose. And then there's this thing called repentance and forgiveness. And people are like, I want it. They were hungry. And it was like, they, they were just out there preaching and people were surrendering their lives. It was amazing. It reminds me, I know, it, uh, it reminds me of, you remember in 2016 when Trump was like, if you elect me, we will win and we will win and we will win and we will all get so sick of winning. <laughs> you remember that? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's like the best kind of def- definition of what was going on in the church between Acts 1 and Acts 6. They were winning and winning and winning. And it seemed like, oh, this is the kingdom coming. This is the victory we've been waiting for. This is the moment. And it was just like good thing upon good thing upon good thing. And then you, chapter six hits. And the second half of chapter six, things fall apart. And we find ourselves in chapter eight. Now, I know the verses came later, but, but I believe all things are sovereign. Isn't it amazing that Acts chapter 1, 8 is the promise that Jesus gives about what we get, the Holy Spirit and witnesses, and we get to go all over the world. And then in chapter 8, 1, the exact opposite, begins the fulfillment of that promise. It turns out that the winning that they were experiencing was only the beginning of what God was going to do to accomplish the church. It's a little bit like when we first become Christians, we feel like everything's amazing and new and fresh and we're excited. And then real life begins to hit and the honeymoon period of following Jesus begins to wear off. And we're like, am I really a Christian? Is this really happening? Did I really believe? Am I really saved? And the questions begin to come in. That's a little bit how the church began to function in the world. It was a lot of consolation of God, just God giving a whole lot of favor and people being saved. And then chapter eight, these two people are introduced, verse one, and Saul approved of his execution. And we don't have time to go through all the story, but the his in here is a guy named Stephen. And he was persecuted and stoned and killed because he loved Jesus. And this, this was the first persecution that began to hit in Jerusalem and the church. And it was approved of, and it was directed by, and it was led by Saul, who ultimately would become Paul and write 13 
books of the New Testament. But at this moment, he's persecuting the church and this guy, Stephen, gets stoned and dies in front of everybody. And it's that moment where people go, oh, wait, I could die for this? You know, it's like, remember a few weeks ago, we're like, well, COVID, no big deal. It's like the flu, but like even not even bad and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden now, we're all kind of like, oh, wait, I, this is bad. It's just like that. It's like, oh, wait a minute, I, I could die from this? This, this, is, this, is, this is bad. I can go to the hospital for this? There may not even be a bed there for this? Like all of that. That's the church is like, oh, wait a minute. It's not all up. It's not all great. It's not all something has put a wrench in the system. Stephen dies. You have this leader leading this incredible persecution. And then it says, on that day, verse one, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. On that day, everything kind of got thrown around. And now all the winning that the church was experiencing is now a different kind of season. And the promise that Jesus made in Acts chapter one, which is you'll be my witnesses, you'll be full of the Holy Spirit and you will begin to go all over the world starts right here. And it starts with on that day when the church gets stopped in its tracks. And then it says this, and they were all scattered. <laughs> and that's why, that's why this text, I think, matters so much to this moment we're in today and, and why we want to talk about it because we, we are scattered. I mean, nothing in comparison to them being scattered, but we are scattered. We're in different living rooms and we're doing church and we are the church. And it's like, wait a minute, I don't know how to be the church on my block if I only know how to show up on a Sunday morning. It, it's, it's not only scattering us as a people, it's scattering what we think about the church and about what it means to be a Christian in the city. And that's where they're at too. And so they begin to scatter and we find out in Acts chapter eight that God begins to fulfill this promise he made in chapter one not through great victory, but through hardship, suffering, pain, confusion, uncertainty. And on this day, suffering became epidemic and pandemic. And that was the way in which God was going to spread the church. What is God doing? What is Something that God might be doing. And, and we don't know everything. There is no answers for it all. Some things belong only to, only to God. But this does give us some sense of what we can see and understand. God chose to mess up the church. God chose to get that whisk in there and just scramble it up, not to hurt the church, but to fulfill the promise. Not to derail the church, but to send the people. And so why did God choose to mess it up? In verse two through 
4 and then through 8 gives us some reasons. So let's just keep reading here. So they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Do you see that fulfilling Acts chapter 1? Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's the hardship. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's amazing. Just highlight that. Circle that. They, they began to get persecuted. The church stopped winning. They, they're facing now, wait a minute, I can lose my life for this? It's not all uphill. We're being scattered. And that word scattered comes with incredible burden. They, they're having to leave homes, pack bags, uh, leave lives, lose jobs in, in, a, in a very uh, severe sense, much more severe than even we are experiencing. But we can experience a little bit. We get a taste of it. We are being scattered in the same way. We're losing. We're giving up. We're, we're, we're having to walk away. That, that's what this word scattered. And that's the same audience that we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews. We're scattered. And, and the preacher is giving them some hope in light of losing everything. So I want to point to a couple of things, make a couple of observations. Uh, why would God choose to mess it all up? scrambled up. Why would God choose to mess up what we had? We, we were having, inc- I mean, for all the years that, that Living Stones has existed, it's been up and down, but by and large, man, we've been experiencing a grace of God, some neat things. Why would God choose to put us in our living room when we were experiencing such good things here and lives being changed and people meeting Jesus and baptisms? Why would he choose to mess it up? Isn't that counterintuitive to his promises? Well, one, we're told out of the text that the scattering forced the people to go to the people that God wanted to save instead of bringing the people that God wanted to save to them. To say it another way is God wanted to send them like a sent people like Jesus was sent. See, incarnation is only some, the incarnation is only something that Jesus can embody, but it does become an abiding principle of the heart of God. And that is God did not wait for us to find heaven. God sent heaven to us. So then we become missionaries. And, 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 and the thing is, is that the church is so good. We love our people. We love, we love getting together. We love our CGs. We love, we love one another And sometimes in loving one another and in loving what God is doing and experiencing such good favor, we often think that the mission of the gospel belongs to somebody else and not us. And so sometimes God chooses to to mess it up in order to send us to the people that God wants to save. Think about that. Now you're locked in a living room or in a house. You can still walk your block and all of that. And so who are the people that you're going to see? It's going to be your neighbors also going stir crazy in their houses. It is going to lend you to have to think about who you relate to and how you relate to the people around you. All of a sudden, where you are right now, Living Stones, is you've been sent to people that God wants to save. You've been sent to a people whom God loves. Oftentimes, a lot of those people would never show up here, but now there's this extended presence that you have on a block in which God has brought the church to your block or to your apartment complex or to your dorm or wherever you are, God has brought you there so that what? 
so that you could all of a sudden now see people differently, have a heart for those people, and, and embody the principle of the incarnation, which is, is the heart of God to send. And then it says in here, they, right, verse 4, they were preaching the word. This word preaching is, is super significant because it doesn't mean preaching like a preacher like I'm doing right now. It, it, it's actually the, the word for evangelism. And all it means is to proclaim good news. And that it was for everybody who was scattered, not just the preachers, not just the ministers, which is another thing. You've been sent out to do the ministry and all of a sudden now the church finds itself in that rightful place, which is the pastors equip and the people go. And what do they do? They evangelize. They proclaim the good news to everyone. And that's what we get to do now in a different way. And, and even if the quarantine, you know, like we don't want to, we don't want to necessarily chop it up with people who we might get sick or share germs. But if anything, you're now on a block and you're now in the presence of people on a block in which God can begin to work in your heart to have a burden to see them meet Jesus. Secondly, God would mess it all up. Why? Because scattering forced the, the Christians of Acts to have to encounter their own idols or face their own idols. They have to leave. They have to go. They have to run. They have to find a new place to live. They have to leave their comforts behind. They had to evaluate what are they in this for? Why does this matter to them? Is this just about morality? Is this just about, I don't know how many times over the years I've heard people who are not Christians bring their kids to church because they want their kids to have some form of morality. What are we in it for? And the question is, were they in it for Jesus? We find ourselves, I think, in two ditches in, in this whole thing right now because I've had conversations with people on both sides. On, on one ditch is the ditch of fear. And I don't know if it's the fear of COVID necessarily as much as it's the fear of the implications of COVID. There's a reason why there's no toilet paper on the shelves. It's because we're all kind of afraid that they, when I need toilet paper, it won't be there. That is fear over the implications of the pandemic, not the pandemic itself. We're, we're afraid over paycheck implication. We're afraid about the healthcare, healthcare and the bell curve and the capacity of ICU beds and hospital care. We are, we're, we're concerned and we have fear over our kids and resources and economy. And maybe some of you plan to retire this year. And now you're like, what am I going to do? I've, we've had the, the, the greatest loss maybe in the history of the U.S. economy, fear. That's one ditch. And I've talked with many of us in our church who are not, af I mean, they want to say they're not afraid, but as you hear them talk, they're very afraid. And the more and more that this is clamped down and the idea of martial law and what other states are doing, we begin to, to look and we begin to go, oh my gosh, this is, this is a crazy time we live in and we begin to grow fearful. The other ditch though, and this is an interesting one because I've had a couple conversations. The other ditch is frustration. The other ditch is you're not afraid because maybe you fit into a young demographic and you're like, even if I got sick, it's no big deal. Although in Washoe County, the people who are sick and hospitalized are between 28 and 40. We don't know enough about this thing. 
but we feel really confident. Some of us are frustrated. Some of you are frustrated that you're not here right now today. Some of you are frustrated because you're like, why are the elders making this kind of decision? Why are we going online? Just let's meet and trust Jesus. And so you're, you're, you're full of frustration because you feel like your freedoms have been taken. You feel like you can't go anywhere. Your job is, is gone for a little while, but, but you were more than willing to work. Maybe your CG is shut down and is not meeting personally because we're trying to follow that 10 or less guideline. And maybe you're frustrated about it because what you were experiencing, you loved. And now that thing has been taken from you. So there's two ditches. But here's the reality of these two ditches. Fear is self-focus and frustration is self-focus. Because what the church was called to be was not called to their own freedoms and it was not called to comfort. It was called to be witnesses. And so if you are frustrated, recognize what are you witnessing to? What are you a witness of? You're a witness of the elevation of your own what you deserve. And so then you witness that you are being diminished somehow, or maybe you're afraid. What are you a witness to? That God is not on the throne, that Jesus is not alive, that he's not resurrected? We're called to be witnesses, not of ourselves, but of Jesus' victory. And then we have this little story about this guy, Philip, who was known as Philip the Evangelist. Right after here, we're told we're called to be evangelists. Philip's called to be, he's called the evangelist. And he goes down, he proclaims. And then the crowds, verse six, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And they heard him and they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were there and many of whom were paralyzed or lame were healed. Verse eight, so there was much joy in the city. Man, so then they were proclaiming Christ and then they were working. There was work and words. They were bringing a sense of what a restored kingdom looks like. And then here's the result. They were filled with much joy. That's incredible. So where we proclaim Christ and then where we work from, from what Christ has done and what, what we know Christ is doing in the world. So we're proclaiming Christ and then we're, we're working for what? For the oppressed. They were spiritually oppressed, crying out. They were physically oppressed. They had issues. They were paralyzed. They were lame. They needed healing. We find ourselves in which people are oppressed, depressed, oppressed by joblessness, even spiritually oppressed with fear. And what happens? We, we proclaim Christ and then we work for the good of Christ in the lives of people. So where God's people does God's work, joy breaks out in the city. And our city needs joy. They need to see witnesses of joy and witnesses working for the joy. You know, Living Stones, what's our, what's our ultimate hope? Our ultimate hope through the preaching and the living of the gospel, that we will change the spiritual climate of northern Nevada. Well, I think now in this little moment, we're being called to change or to bring hope to the spiritual climate of our quasi-quarantine. See, comfort breeds comfort. Frustration 
breeds frustration, but joy breeds joy. It's unlikely, although it's, it's possible, that our non-Christian friends are gonna watch this live stream or watch this video, but they're connected to you. You have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. I mentioned my dad earlier. There's another story that pops out and you may or may not know. I, I may or may not have used it, but my dad, there's a moment in my dad's life about five years before he died that embodies these things in a radical way. My dad was falsely accused of some things and, and he went to jail for about seven, eight months before he was completely exonerated. But while he was in this jail, he, uh, he began to minister to the men that he was incarcerated with as an 80-year-old. My dad spent his 80th birthday in prison. My dad spent his 50th wedding anniversary in jail. And he found himself with a group of guys hardcore guys that he would not otherwise ever be in relationship with. And he had decided that Jesus in this little part of his life had sent him into this prison. And so every time I would go to the, I would get, every Saturday I'd, I'd visit my dad and he would ask me to always bring a Bible. He can have one Bible. And so he would take one Bible, he'd give one Bible and wait for the next week until we could bring him a new Bible. And, and over those weeks, he gave 20, 30 Bibles away. He had to decide, was this about him? Was this about God missing him, God losing him, God ignoring him? He had to decide this time was a time for Jesus. And his joy changed the climate of that prison. We received a letter from an inmate who had no idea that my dad had passed away. He spent those next five years after my dad was exonerated, he, sent the, he spent the next five years in prison until finally he was freed, paroled. And he wrote our family a letter of how he met Jesus and how my dad smiled in a place where no one smiled. And that my dad had given him a Bible and that my dad had told him about Jesus and he sent our family a letter and how his life is totally changed. Not because this guy showed up to a church, but because God messed up my family and God messed up my dad and sent him to a people who would not otherwise ever meet Jesus. The Holy Spirit was given to us for this time. Nevada's been preparing, right? But unfortunately, I think the preparations and empty gun shelves and empty toilet paper shelves are not the preparation. We are prepared for this, not because we have done the work, but because God has given us his spirit. Spurgeon says it like this, in every church where there is, where there is really the power of the spirit of God, the Lord will cause it to be spread abroad, more or less. He never means that a church should be like a nut shut up in a shell or like an ointment enclosed in a box. But instead, the precious perfume of the gospel must be poured forth to sweeten the air. Living Stones, we are in this moment for at least one reason and a trillion others, and that is to sweeten the air. And may you sweeten the air where you are.
Here's a couple prayers I would invite us to pray. Maybe you are a person who loves knowledge more than Jesus, and so this morning it's an opportunity for you to let go of what you want and hold to what has been given to you, which is Christ and Him crucified. And maybe on this very strange and odd Sunday morning, wherever you are, you will receive Jesus for the first time. For others, maybe our prayer would be something more like, Lord, what is my abiding emotion? And Lord, will you give me the power of the Holy Spirit to surrender that emotion so that I can be fully present in faith? Or maybe a prayer would be, Holy Spirit, lead me today to be a person who brings joy to the climate of my block or my apartment complex. We aim small, we hit small. And right now we've been scattered. We've been scattered to people to remind us that this has always been our mission. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, oh, how good you are. By your grace, you have... You have done what you've done this morning. We're recording this. I know it's, it's not live, but your Holy Spirit transcends time. And the prayer that I'm praying now, Holy Spirit, is that you will engage our church in the living room this very moment, in our cars this very moment, at a, if we are at a workplace, at our workplace, wherever we're watching this, I'm praying, Holy Spirit, that you will bring about the air of grace and sweeten the air that we breathe, and, and by proclaiming your word, and by God's work through our lives, you will sweeten the air around us. Oh God, you are doing something, and you're going to mess it up in order to accomplish it. So although we don't know, we do trust. And keep us from the ditch of fear, and keep us from the ditch of frustration. We pray in your name, amen.